Oh, hey! Welcome to this episode of Opera After Dark. Today, we're going to be talking about Victoria and Albert, because uh, we have Victoria Day coming up, eh? You sound like you're from Fargo. You do! A place I've never been to, but I've seen the movie, so I'm assuming those accents are, like, correct. I've not even seen the movie, but... Isn't oh, that, Kyle, I feel like that's so like. Good. What's the show that, that you've told us about, Naomi, where they do just like the hardcore, like middle country Canadian accent? Oh, Heartland. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, how it's, would you. It's like, how would it's you... like Canadian West because it's filmed and shot in Alberta and, and it's uh-huh. set like. It takes place in Alberta, but there are some strong Canadian accents in it. Yeah. So how would you rate my introduction accent? It was pretty good for some part of Canada, just not a part <laughs> that I live in or have wow. lived in. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. But well, that's we mean... had to do some kind of accent. The British accent was going to be more offensive, probably. There I were some like things so. that I deeply sympathized with. Like it sounded sort of newfy, like like you've been watching Come From Away. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd been watching Come From I Away. I, I feel know. like this is the meanest that Naomi gets. <laughs> like what she just said was like the nastiest thing that she's ever said about anybody. So Oh, I don't know about take that. that. Oh gosh, it got a of salt. <laughs> No, I take it as a compliment. The fact that it's even somewhat of a semblance of an appropriate accent for somebody, I'll take as a positive. And also mm. there's there's certain words that when I hear them, they just deeply remind me of home or like parts of where I grew up because even where I am right now is quite different from where I grew up. And so there's like a West Coast British Columbian accent that is different from Southern Ontario, which is where I'm from. And so the A... Is very much a Southern Ontario thing, <laughs> and and the the strange kind of closed, like opera after dark, dark. That's a very uh. to me is a very Southern Ontario thing. Like if you go to Tim Hortons and you order coffee in Southern Ontario, you hear people say, "Oh, the large," <laughs> and it's like a very strange <laughs> AR sound. Large. But the large. Man, large. we need to have some. We need to have a linguist on the show yeah. to talk about. That'd be fine. I'd be so interested, particularly with different dialects and accents in the English language, to mm-hmm. see how they form, when they formed, why they formed. For sure. It's interesting. You have so many differences within the same language. Yes. It's what makes English endlessly fascinating. Well, we are talking about Canadian accents because today's episode is inspired by an upcoming holiday or a recently past holiday i i didn't want to correct you but i have to that correct is, you today is victoria day oh. we are recording this today's on of day. course god how could we not know on such an important day we're re- recording this episode on victoria day so what's what? victoria day you yeah. ask naomi please tell us yes so Victoria Day is a Canadian statutory holiday. And so... (laughs) When you say statutory holiday, what does that mean? It means like 
It means like you, as an, if you're a, a business, you have to give your employees this day off or pay them holiday pay. It's like, it's like a required federal holiday. It's not optional. Right. Like, so, I, I know so what you, a, I know what you American, meant by statutory. Yeah, yeah, but like in American English, the word statutory is really only used when you're talking about statutory rape. Ooh, so I didn't oh. know where you were. It was just weird. Kyle, we call them too. We call them government holidays. Yeah, I'm. I gotta or look this up. Did I use the sometimes, wrong word? No, no, sure no. I, th- I think that's it correct. It makes sense in context, but it was just a, a foreign use of the word. We Statutory also holiday. <laughs> bank Man- holidays. Mandatory. Yeah, it's it's or a public holiday. It's like everybody uh, gets it. Yeah. It's not like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Fair language. enough. Language. Language. So it's a government holiday. No, I mean, we'll call it what it's called in Canada. It's a statutory holiday. Right. Or a public holiday. And so it's always celebrated on the last Monday preceding May 25th. So whatever Monday falls before May 25th, that is Victoria Day. However... It is named Victoria Day because Queen Victoria's birthday in England was on May 24th, 1819. So originally the holiday came into being because everybody would celebrate Queen Victoria's birthday on May 24th, on her birthday. And so now they have kind of shifted it to it's always the Monday before May 25th so that every few years it does fall on May 24th. Right, ah, but okay. not every single year, and so gotcha. this is one of those years where Victoria Day is not on May twenty fourth; it's on May eighteenth. Um, however, nowadays, even though it's called Victoria Day, technically, what the holiday celebrates is the birthday of the reigning British Queen. So, ah. okay, yes. So it the name remains Victoria Day because of its historical link to Queen Victoria's birthday. But technically, it is a holiday because we are celebrating the birthday of the reigning British monarch. Right. Even though we are no longer, uh, you know, I guess, even though, I guess a better way of saying it is, even though we are now our own autonomous country, right? Right. Uh, but for a long time, we were not. We were a British territory or a British dominion or colony or whatever you want to call it. still technically a subject of... We are part of the Commonwealth. Right, right. But yeah. basically we have autonomy in like every way legally that matters for making decisions <laughs> right. for your country, right? <laughs> exactly. Although I did actually look this up to make sure I got it straight because it wasn't until um so it wasn't until 1901 after Queen Victoria died that Victoria Day was officially made a holiday, even though people often celebrated and had festivals on that day before that. And we actually have evidence of like people celebrating Queen Victoria's birthday, like much earlier than Canada was actually a country. Like, so it, nice. it goes way back to basically her birth. Since her birth, people have been celebrating her. Yeah. And other other countries also have their own like reigning monarch day, like either. King's Day or Queen's Day, depending on who the reigning monarch is. Right, but I think Canada Day is the only one that continues to honor, or I think Canada is the only country that continues to honor Queen Victoria in the name 
of the day. Oh, really? So yeah. even this isn't a holiday that's celebrated in Great Britain. I don't think so. Oh, that's. I cool. mean, like they they might call it something else, but they don't they don't have Victoria Day sanctioned. Oh, as, like, see, I assumed yeah. that this would be something for all of Great Britain and. The, all of the Commonwealth countries, but that is not the case. Yeah. We are the only country that has designated it as an official holiday. Cool. And as such, uh, the Royal Union flag is flown from sunrise to sunset on all federal buildings um, and a bunch of other places. And there's often a lot of festivals when people can congregate in large groups. Um, <laughs> not so this year. And so... Uh, this has been a part of Canadian history since before Canada was a country. And so what I found interesting and what inspired this episode was that given that the day celebrated Queen Victoria's birthday, it got me interested in Queen Victoria and Albert, her husband. I guess he was Prince Albert, mm-hmm. right? So I know that the two of them were big patrons of the arts and a lot of people talk about like how much they did for classical music and the performing arts, both in Great Britain and kind of like on a in the Western world. And so it got me curious, like, what was it that they were so interested in? Because there is this story that Queen Victoria met Mendelssohn. And cool. she was a big fan of Mendelssohn. And she said to him that there's this particular song that she said, oh, I'm I just want you to know that this particular song is my absolute favorite. I play it all the time. And um, and I think it's a, a, a lead, like for a piano and voice. And she said, it's my favorite of your songs. And he said, oh, actually, my sister wrote that. And it was published under my name. Oh, so, <laughs> dang. Yeah. At least he was honest about that. Get it, Fanny? Yes. Yeah, so it was Fanny's, and I think the song is called Italienne. And so I knew that story as like an anecdotal story. And I know generally that Victoria and Albert were very much into the arts, but I didn't really know how deep their love of opera went. And so that was kind of what inspired me to look into where they cross paths with opera. But before we get to that, uh, I thought we it would be good to learn a little bit generally about Victoria and Albert since they're pretty important in the history of the British monarchy. Um, And they also have this story, like kind of, I guess, a love story that's been inspired films and televisions, quite a television series quite a bit lately. So we should talk just a little bit generally about who are they, how they came to be rulers of England and, and what the important things are to know about them. So Elspeth, Well, like Naomi said, Victoria was born in 1819. She died in 1901, so she was 81 when she died. Super old for that period of time. She um, was the reigning monarch of England for 63 years and seven months, um, which up to that point was longer than any of her her predecessors. Her um, father, the way she inherited, she became queen when she was 18. Um, her father passed away, and then he had um, three brothers, and they all died without any kind of surviving heir. And so Victoria was was it. Victoria became queen when she was 18. Um, hugely popular. She reigned over this huge period of Britain that was just all about expansion, the Industrial Revolution. Um, they 
basically like conquered all of the world, went to India, planted a flag on it. It's Britain's now, you know, that kind of shit. Um, as one does. As one does. <laughs> all you need is a flag and you've claimed it. For and a big ass army. And a big right. ass army. Or navy. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, she was hugely influential. My connection to Queen Victoria is that the last time we were in Scotland, we went to a little town that was famous because the inn there um, was once Queen Victoria went there to change horses. Ooh. Um, so it's claim to fame, and we used the toilet there, so there you go. So <laughs> what you're saying is that you used the exact same toilet. It was the exact same Queen toilet. Victoria it's, it's very very old plumbing. They they probably should do an update, but why but, would you if it was a toilet that Queen Victoria used? So historic. So romantic. Could right. you yes. <laughs> Did you feel did you have a special moment when you I'm I'm sorry, I, like, I, I can't touch, take I like, it there. I, I can't I touched, yeah. I touched the plaque that says Queen Victoria once changed horses here. It was weird. Ooh, we went nice. inside and there was literally nobody in there. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to go to the bathroom off of here. And right. I should just get back in the car. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. Still pretty uh, cool. Um, so isn't, she, yes. Isn't Victoria like, she's like the mother of something or like the mother of Europe is one of her nicknames because her bloodline, like, her children married a bunch of monarchs from other countries, and so like so many of her grandchildren mm-hmm. ended up being reigning monarchs of different countries, including like Elizabeth and F- Philip, like current Queen Elizabeth and Philip. Aren't they're like cousins, right? Both descendants from Victoria. I believe so. When she she had nine kids. Like, Damn. nine kids that survived. Um, and actually, seven of them were within the first ten years of her marriage. So she was... Whoa. Right. We'll get to that in a second. So, Albert. Yeah. Albert is... Was her first cousin. Which, you know, let's harken back to when that was not a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he right. was German. Basically, like, aristotic, arist- aristocratic but super poor relation. And he had been groomed basically oh. from birth that he was going to be, like, the prince consort, which I think is what it's what it's called. Um, so they knew each other all of their lives, and they had met many times before, and Victoria was just kind of like, eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> and then the story goes, when she turned 18, became queen, they met again when they were, you know, lustful teenagers. And she took one look at him and was like, yeah. mm, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you've seen the recent TV series, uh, Victoria, yes. you know why. Because Albert is a hottie. He did not look like that, nor did she look like that. <laughs> but I mean, that's okay. What? I know. Horrible. Um, I feel so, hoodwinked. You feel hoodwinked? <laughs> yeah. So she, they, they fell, I guess they fell madly in love. She proposed to him after five days. Um, Good for her. Yeah, well, Aww. at that point, the queen would be the one that would ask the man to, to marry her. She was the queen. Um, So Victoria was hugely popular. Albert was not. Um, So what happened, like I said, the first 10 years of their marriage, she gave birth to seven kids. So she was pretty much pregnant 
for all the majority the time. all the time. She suffered from a lot of postpartum depression. She went on the record because they have her diaries that still exist that she did not like babies. Ugh. Didn't really like kids. She was fine with them once they were older, but when they were little, she was like, I'm not into this. Um, <laughs> and again, also, I'm she sorry. had a lot of postpartum depression, which was not a thing that was acknowledged back then. So she had these huge temper tantrums, huge fits of depression. And so Albert kind of, some people say like weaseled his way into it. I don't know if that's true. Basically took over as the reigning monarch because she was busy being like pregnant and miserable and she didn't want to deal with this stuff. And also you have to realize the Victorian era, which obviously is named after Queen Victoria, um, was known for these really sort of rigid set of morals and rigid set of gender roles. And Victoria had gone on the record many times saying how, you know, a woman's purpose is to be a wife and a mother and she didn't really want to deal with all of this shit that she had to deal with as the queen. She would rather leave that to her husband because a woman's place, you know, is in the home as a mother and a helpmeet to the Ugh. man. So there's a lot of that shit going on. And That's frustrating um, when you have, like, a strong and powerful woman who then, like, their own personal belief and language is like not supportive of other people being strong and powerful it is very frustrating especially if you think also what happened at that time uh, was the beginning of the suffragette movement um Mm. which victoria Mm -hmm. was just not into dang in any way shape or form which is also like kind of mind-boggling because and i don't even know exactly how much this is a truthful depiction, but I feel like in the television series of Victoria and Albert, and also in that movie that came out not long ago, The Young Victoria, Ooh, yes. they make it they make it sound like, or they portray her as if she was so reluctant to let Albert rule alongside her. Like she, they make it seem like she was determined to be the ruling monarch and determined to not let him like overshadow her. In that role. That was not. Which is a lot of power. She at the very, very beginning was kind of reluctant to like get married. But once she Mm. became queen, when she was 18, a couple months later, she met Albert again. That all like flew out the window. Okay. So they had their marriage, which was portrayed in the media as this like wonderful beacon of what family and home should be. These like pillars of these Victorian ideals kind of thing, which obviously wasn't the case mm. because like nothing is, is like that all the time, <laughs> you know? Because they, it's never the case. Because it's never the case. Right. That's not what real life is like. But they, they did, they were very much in love by all accounts. Um, and it is very romantic because tragically he died when he was like 41. Um, very suddenly, I think he had a, a stroke. Um, which like devastated her and she lived another 40 years she never remarried and she stayed in mourning like the whole time like she, she wore black the whole time forever yeah mm-hmm. which if you look back now it's a very like romantic notion right so she reigned for 63 almost 64 years which was the longest any monarch had reigned um but she i'm assuming has been beaten at this point by Kiwi she Kiwi. has Who's been queen mm-hmm. since like the the 40s, right? Uh, 50s. I think it was 50s? 52. Okay. If watching Netflix's The Crown serves me right. Yes. 
<laughs> I love a good British drama, British TV mm. show in general. Who doesn't? But right? Naomi, you right. said they were big patrons of the arts. They were huge patrons of the arts. So there's a lot of ways in which because of the period in which she lived and because of her love of opera, they converge, like her life converges with opera history in this really interesting way. Because if you think of the year she was born, 1819, we're in like the height of the bel canto in Italy, right? You have German romanticism is just like starting to take off. And so apparently Queen Victoria loved the opera it was her favorite art form of all the art forms and after marrying albert she converted him as well into being quite the opera fanatic and so before they met like in the 1830s when she was a young princess she would go to drury lane into the king's theater all the time and she would see operas she would see ballets she would see plays and apparently when she was younger she did really like the ballet she was a big fan of Marie Taglioni, who apparently was the first ballerina to dance on point and to wear the knee-length ballet skirt. So she kind of witnessed this really important moment in the history of ballet, right, as a a fan. Wait, before that, was it like a floor-length ballet skirt or ankle-length ballet skirt? I think it was ankle-length. Like, you could see their feet, but you couldn't really see anything else. That's so hard to imagine. Right. So scandalous. So That'd be hoary. so cumbersome. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and she didn't even get the tutu. Like, Queen Victoria right. watched Marie Taglioni dress, or dancing in a knee-length skirt. And right. I'm sure right? that was, was huge woo! scandal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, by this time, also in, like, the 1830s, if you look at opera, this is around the time, this really crucial moment where the castrati kind of fall out of fashion really sharply, right? Because there were still castrato singing on stage and in churches and in opera houses, and concert halls, that kind of thing at this time. But you have this moment between 1830 and 1840 where you have the rise of the star tenor and star female soprano, right? And you have the sharp decline of the castrati in popularity. And then you also have around this moment, like Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini have kind of reached the apex of their fame in Italy, right? And like bel canto by these composers is like all the rage and it's dominating basically European opera. It like not so much in Germany, but it is this huge force in opera, right? And so apparently Queen Victoria loved the Italian bel canto composers, Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, And she started to become quite a fan of specific operas of theirs and also of specific stars who sang at that time. Because this is also like the rise of the diva in many ways. You have like this new era of these like incredibly famous singers that before that we didn't have the same kind of like diva in the industry or diva leading men and leading women it was the the castrati were the superstars right but now all of this shifts so now you have the tenors and sopranos start to kind of take center stage and so so she actually loved italian opera specifically that was like her thing she loved it so much that she learned to speak italian she also learned it what does she think about the tudor queens tudor queen operas Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Ooh, yeah. I thought yeah. that was a stab in the dark. 
No, no, we'll get to that. So she loved Italian opera so much that she learned to speak Italian. She also started to take singing lessons so that she could Ooh. learn to sing in an operatic style as well. She was, of course, a really well-educated woman. Like, she was an excellent pianist and sight reader already because, like, all ladies of good breeding learned the fine arts at this mm-hmm. time, right? Naturally. And so, yes, naturally. And... Uh, <laughs> So she actually in, like hired this very famous Italian tenor, Luigi Labacchi, 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 Luigi, to give her <laughs> le- lessons. You know, like when he, Naomi's cousin. Naomi's yes, cousin Luigi. You know, like, yep. like yes, um, my you know great 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 grandfather twice removed, Luigi, and <laughs> came to London to sing in the opera house and she hired him to be her voice teacher and initially it was just going to be like for that season while he was in town singing and then he actually remained her singing teacher for 20 years so she was dedicated and apparently lord melbourne who was uh one of her political advisors that she was quite close with they make a big deal about this in the historical television shows she would drag him to the opera before she met Albert but, uh, and kind of forced Lord Melbourne to come with her, even though he hated it and said he would like to remain on the sofa, uh, basically just having I mean, a nice quiet night in. You do have to have a good opera buddy, I will say. Yes, it's true. So, preferably your think, significant other, but if not, you got to find somebody. I think she succeeded in turning Albert into her opera buddy, that's for sure. Um, there's also a lot of paintings and sketches because she was also a very prolific painter so she would sketch and paint things from her view of the opera box and then there's so there's a lot of paintings that exist of by her that she did of like from her perspective out of the opera box and then there's a lot of paintings and etchings of her in in the opera box like attending the opera so it's quite well documented and when she married Albert, she discovered that he was also a pretty decent singer. So apparently the two of them would pass the time in the evening singing duets or Victoria would play the piano and Albert would sing. And, That's nice. Yeah. That's like my dream. I, <laughs> right? <laughs> I want Olivia to play the piano so I can just sing. <laughs> right. See, I want Denver to sing so I can I can like play enough that he could he could sing along but he does have a decent voice you know he he did teach us the canadian national anthem at last canada day oh yes he's just a little too shy to really sing out but fair enough anyhow so then i mentioned that queen victoria was in this moment where you have all these star singers really coming to gain like public admiration and popularity for the first time like the sopranos and the tenors because before this it was just the castrati so maria malibran was victoria's first favorite female singer and malibran sang a huge amount of repertoire she spanned both soprano and mezzo and contralto parts so she apparently had this massive range and maria malibran was actually the daughter of the famous voice teacher manuel garcia which also makes her the sister to the very famous mezzo-soprano Pauline Viardot. And apparently her father, Manuel Garcia, was her first teacher, and the two of them would get into these, like, wild spats and, like, crazy arguments because they both had very big dramatic personalities because they were both 
singers, right? <laughs> and <laughs> if ever there was a constant in this world, it is that singers right. have big and dramatic personalities. And apparently Maria Malibran died very suddenly when she was only 28 years old. And Queen Victoria was just like devastated by this because she was her favorite singer at the time. And when Victoria turned 25, which was not long before Malibran's death, um, her family threw her a surprise birthday party in which Maria Malibran, the tenor Luigi Labacche, soprano Giulia Grisi, baritone Antonio Tamburini, and the tenor Battista Rubini were all in attendance and they all performed for her like various excerpts. So these are like some of the biggest names of this time. Like it's like having like Anna Netrebko, Jonas Kaufman, I don't know, Bryn Terfel, and I don't know, when Isabel Leonard, like a, a, attend your birthday party and sing come. for you. Right. right? So uh, apparently in her diaries, which she kept very detailed accounts of basically her entire life, she said that the the moment she remembers most fondly was when they sang A Teo Caro from I Portatani. So we can listen to a little bit of that and just imagine that you're at Queen Victoria's birthday and having this performed by all these legendary, incredible singers. Victoria became a huge fan of Julia Grisi and Queen Victoria was actually in the audience when Julia Grisi had her London debut in 1834 and that debut was in Donizetti's Maria Stuarda. 
Ah, so, Tudor Queen. There you go, a Tudor Queen. And from that moment on, Victoria absolutely loved Greasy. She found her to be this amazing, moving actress as well as a singer. So it kind of gets to the idea of like the singing or the the singing actress, right? That we so highly prize in opera today. Mm-hmm. And just to give you a sense of Greasy and how important she was, um, Julia Greasy was the first at Algiza in Bellini's Norma, and she was also the first Elvira in E Portatani, and nice. she was the first Norina in Donizetti's Don Pasquale. So this was like a really, um, really successful and like well-respected singer of this time. Nice. So the first opera that Victoria and Albert attended together was E Portatani. And they went to Iporotani together before they were married. So I guess in that five-day period <laughs> where, where they were dating. Mm-hmm. An important um, thing to do in your and courtship. And basically, right from that point onward, like, go to the opera, see if it works out, and there you go. Exactly. I mean, that's definitely a, a test that all of our spouses had to pass. So, uh, <laughs> Right. Although I did not subject mine to Iporotani. But. Right. No, no. Uh, I did actually. Actually, that was the last. Oh, uh-huh, that was the last opera that we saw together before we got married. Oh, <laughs> there you go. It was like following in the footsteps of Victoria and Albert. Right. Who knew? Yes. So, from that point onward, Victoria actually referred to E Puritani as Dear Puritani because it was. Like, forever her favorite, because it was, like, the opera that brought her and Albert together. Right. I'm happy to go on record saying that it is a boring, boring opera. Truly. I mean, it's very dramatic and... I guess. The music the music is beautiful. <laughs> I was not right. inspired when okay. I saw said opera. Apparently, Victoria liked high drama and high romance, and she found that in the bel canto operas. Okay. So she hadn't seen romantic era opera yet. No, she hadn't. No, she she didn't know. Misses it. Yeah. She didn't know what yeah. was coming, so it's not her fault. I'll get to that though. She got a little taste of it. So nice. I mean, she Anyhow, lived for like all of Verdi's career, so she did. However, I'll just oh, say it now no. because she was in mourning. <gasps> she couldn't really go to the opera, true. and so oh my! Apparently, she gosh. was familiar with some of Verdi's later works, and I guess she became familiar through more acceptable ways than like an outing to the opera when you're in mourning. But she missed a lot of Verdi's, you know, big hits because she couldn't or wouldn't go. Oh my gosh! Why and wouldn't so... you celebrate the life of your lost loved one by going and doing the thing that you used to do together? That was not the way. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so needless, Victoria. But who am I to say? I've not been in that situation. I just feel sad I think she still found ways to become familiar with new music and to to take pleasure in this art form that she loved. It was just not very public, her way of taking in the art form, right? Which meant that she did not get to see a lot of these public performances in the latter part of her life. I'm getting ahead of ourselves, and I'm sorry. But when it's okay. when was the music hall named for... Is it the Royal Albert 
Music Royal Hall. Albert Hall is named after Albert. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was named after him after he died. And while she was but alive. I could be wrong. So shouldn't I she go to the so. Royal Albert Hall to like... Kyle, let it go. <laughs> I, she didn't. That's uh, the point. She just didn't. <laughs> she just wanted to show people just how deeply in mourning she was. Yep. And she yeah. said, I will not go. Well, I mean, she achieved it. We're still talking about yes. it. So we know she loved Ipuratani. She also loved Norma and La Sonambula. And while Albert was alive, the two of them saw those three operas 20 times in a span of 25 years. Dang. Good Lord. <laughs> so that's like severe fandom, extreme fandom, yeah. right? And... Her second favorite composer to Bellini was Donizetti, and I thought Kyle would like this. She had a special soft spot for Le Lazier d'Amore. Of course she did. Who That's wouldn't? True. It's a delightful comedy. <laughs> Except and maybe also, Elspeth in this I love, moment. I love Elixir. <laughs> Elixir it's charming. Is a, it's great. It's, just it's great. very charming. It's just so nice. Mm-hmm. It is. Yes. And she also liked La Fille de Regiment as well also because it was charming. a lot of fun. What did mm-hmm. she think about the high seas? Presumably she loved them. Never said. Couldn't get enough of them. Ah. No. I don't know. I, I don't know. If she that. loved them, you would think she would write about them. Victoria. Possibly. Actually, her entire diaries, you can now access the UK published, like the UK royal family or archives, the institution that looks after all of the archives, published her entire diaries. Oh. Um, and if you're a UK citizen, then you can access them. Dang. If you are not a UK citizen, then you have to access them through ProQuest, which I had a hard time getting into. So I couldn't, I was trying to get into the diary so I could like search operas by name to see what she said about certain things. But I haven't been able to access them wow. yet. I appreciate so, your research. That's... I did try. I have something to add. Yes. Please. So I think the reason that Victoria loved Bellini so much, and I just learned about this today, is up until that point uh, in Bel Canto, especially, there was all this like, you know, crazy florid singing and all of this kind of stuff, but none of the singers were ever really required to, you know, like act or, <laughs> right. or, or emote. And apparently, that was like Bellini's big claim to fame is that he was really adamant in rehearsals that singers like really emote and really sort of like get the feeling of the piece. And apparently that was the first time that it ever happened. So I understand why she would be super into like the drama and romance of it. Cause this might've been the first time that that was even like attempted to be portrayed operatically on stage. And in her writing, she talks about being, being enchanted by, the emotion that the singers would put in. And so the the singers that became her favorites, most of them worked directly with Bellini at some point. And she often commented on them being excellent actors or actresses as well as singers. So that I think is a, like a major turning point in history that we don't really talk about ever. Yeah. Because we take it for granted nowadays that singers act when they sing. (laughs) Most of the time. Most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right <laughs> did she ever meet bellini i wonder i don't think she did because oh. he died when she was still quite young i think he died in 34 1834 or around there oh, okay oh, right because right, he died pretty young he died young and she was still like a teenager so 
Yeah. Um, well, that's too bad. But she did also like Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor and Lucrezia Borgia. Those were her two favorite, like, non-comedic Donizetti, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which is unsurprising because they're, like, the closest in terms of high drama and romance to the Bellini favorites. And apparently her favorite Rossini was not Barbara of Seville, but was La Cenerentola. Oh, nice. Okay. And she did quite like Rossini's Otello, which had its world premiere in 1816. And that was like her favorite staged version of Otello until Verdi's Otello in 1887 eclipsed Rossini's in popularity. So even though she wasn't really attending the opera at that time because she would have been in mourning, it was still a work that she got to hear in some way. And oh, it like that's good. kind of immediately eclipsed Rossini's for her. So she really liked that opera as well. Okay, that makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> but she never yeah. saw like she never saw Aida. I don't Gosh. not in a public theater. I think the last thing that I don't know if she attended it, but it was in something I read, like one of the last things that we know she was very familiar with from seeing it live was Il Trovatore, I think. Oh. Which was in when was that? Like in the eighteen fifties or mm-hmm. Late early 60s so anyhow but from that point onward like once albert dies she wasn't going to public performances so it was hard for her harder for her to take in these new works at the same pace as 20 operas in 25 years right yeah Uh, and that was just her favorites apparently i'll get there's another they had like a, a blitz on going to the opera i'll get to that in a moment but um in her writing we know from her diaries that she actually quite disliked Mozart. <laughs> so okay. it wasn't like pure hatred. It wasn't hatred, but basically she said they're too long. The operas are too long. She said, and she said too many notes. Well, too many notes, Mozart, too many notes. And while she did admire them for like their technical prowess, she just found the length too long. And it wasn't until later in her life that she admitted that of all of them, Don Giovanni was probably her favorite, which kind of makes sense because it's the most tight-knit of all Mozart's operas. And it might be the shortest of his mature operas in terms of runtime. I think so. But then she so, said, but that Donatavio's a wet blanket. I hmm. hate him. Oh, I kind of like Donatavio. I know. Uh, anyway, conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. So... She and Albert did go on a kind of like opera going blitz together when the Swedish soprano Jenny Lind, who was nicknamed the Swedish Nightingale, came to London in 1847. And so Victoria and Albert attended 16 of her performances. Dang. When she was in London in that year alone. And Jenny Lind kind of eclipsed Julia Greasy in fame. And so she became Queen Victoria's new favorite her third fan phase i call it and uh so in 1847 in that debut year for lind in london victoria and albert attended in person 16 of her performances and then returned to see her performances basically every time she came back to england nice she also took in a lot of gilbert and sullivan and so does anybody want to guess her favorite gilbert and sullivan show pirates of penzance mm. Is it the Pirates of Penzance? It is not the Pirates of Penzance. I feel like it's one of the less famous ones. Yes? I think so. 
I consider it less famous, but... Is it... Ilanthi? Nope. Yeoman of the Guard? No, I've never heard of that one. <laughs> it's not the Mikado. It's not the Mikado. God, that that would be disappointing. <laughs> it would be disappointing. Uh, this is, is kind of know. funny just for me, but it's the Gondoliers or oh. the King of Barataria. Oh. I don't really know the Gondoliers. There's a I, King I don't of Barataria opera? No, Barataria, I right, think. Right, the Baratera. king of Barataria. Yeah. Barataria, I guess it would be. <laughs> right. I'll but, think of it as king of Barataria. Mm-hmm. Right. The Gondoliers was her favorite of all of Gilbert and Sullivan, and scholars think it's because it parodies a lot of the bel canto composers uh, in it. So That makes sense then. Yes. So it wasn't until the end of her life that she took quite a liking to Wagner... Specifically, Lohengrin. Oh, and no. Mozart, yeah. Mozart was too long. <laughs> right. I don't know. People's I taste, don't make these things up. I just change. report. That's true. Yes. Taste so, change. taste change. And it was on her 80th birthday that she had three selections of Lohengrin performed as part of her birthday celebrations. And was she wrote of, of the performance. March. I'm not sure. I kind of think it wasn't, but hmm. I don't know. Because she would have still been in mourning and that might have struck a chord. Mm. But Ooh. Right? I don't know. But she did write that the performance was, quote, simply enchanting. And that it was, quote, the most glorious composition, so poetic, so dramatic, and one might also say religious in feeling and full of sadness, pathos, and tenderness. The whole of the opera produced a great impression on me. Wow. Wait, the so whole of the she, opera. So, like, she listened she to had all of the opera. Selections performed at her birthday, but I think the whole, like, everything that she experienced of it. Gotcha. And she is known to be one of the earliest proponents of Wagner's operas in England because they still weren't performed very often by the by that point. Hmm. Yeah. And then she died. She died in 1901. <laughs> it's not too blunt. I, no, no, she lived a very full life, and I find it interesting. Like, just even though she was obviously a big fan of Bel Canto, it seems like she saw all kinds of different opera because there are a few different etchings of performances happening inside um, Windsor Castle, like Ooh. kind of public or private performances, I guess, for her and her family and her guests. And one of the etchings that it survives is of Bizet's Carmen being performed. And another one is of Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana. So nice. her, her kind of exposure to all of these different operas was quite wide ranging. And they do pick up on these things in the different television and movies that have been made about her. So Opera Wire actually wrote a neat article that was kind of talking about the symbolism of music in, in film about Victoria and Albert. And there's one scene, apparently, I think this is in the young Victoria, the movie where in the scene, Albert's family is like trying to prep him for talking to Victoria to kind of win favor. And he's quizzed on what's Victoria's favorite opera. And he says, Norma. And then he's corrected. Yikes. 
right? And then uh, it's actually not Norma, it's Iporotani, but then apparently the film then cuts to Victoria in a performance of Vieni, Vieni fra questa braccia. And uh, in the movie, it's, I think, a Giuseppe Di Stefano recording that they use. And it's this love duet that hints at kind of foreshadowing what is going to happen between Victoria and Albert, right? So this article in Opera Wire goes into the kind of symbolic use of very specific moments from opera and how they kind of symbolize what is happening in their relationship. So, we'll, and we'll then they sure say to, that the fact... We'll share that on, on Facebook. We'll put it yeah, out there. We'll see. And I don't know if it will be easy to find that particular moment um, in the actual Show. film, yeah. but we can listen to, we can play out to that that duet or that particular love scene, um, the Vieni Vieni. And they also talk in the movie a lot. They make a big deal about how Albert loves Schubert and Victoria has other musical preferences and how slowly she like starts to love Schubert in the same way that like her affection grows for Albert. Mm. So yeah, they, they really play on that in the, in both the television series and the movie. But as you can tell from my, string of fun facts and stories she definitely was a huge patron of the arts and crossed paths with these composers and their works and early star singers in i think a really interesting way because her life coincides with a huge amount of development in opera like so much happened in opera in the 1800s and her life basically spans like 80 years of that right so she got to see so much and hear so much that when it was happening, when it was new and trendy and different, that now we take for granted as like canonic works and canonic composers. Right. Like she, her life spanned from the heart of the Bel Canto era all the way through the start of the Verismo. It's a long time. Yeah, she was, if you, it's so crazy to think she was just a few years away. She died like four years before Zalame, right? She's probably okay so. with that. If you, if you could, yeah, she was probably fine. If you could that. ask her now. Although Zalame is short, so that's true. And actually, she seemed yeah. to be open-minded about new styles. It's like such a novel thing that you know, you can hear new, different styles of opera and actually like them. <gasps> what? Yeah. And dun, she did. Dun, dun. Just gotta give, but please, stuff a try, folks. Gotta give it a try, but. Give Mozart a chance. He's not that bad. Oh, uh, I don't know. I think she had it right. <laughs> oh! Just kidding, Naomi. Just kidding. Just oh. getting a rise. I yeah. love Mozart. I was just listening to the Cozy Fantute Overture earlier today. Fun. That's some fun music. Yes. So that's a little bit about Queen Victoria and Prince Consort Albert and all they experienced in opera and the arts in their lifetime. Hopefully you've learned a little bit about them and maybe looked up some operas or arias that you haven't listened to lately. Now we need to go to Prince Albert Hall at some point. Mm. Wouldn't that be fun? Naomi, you've been to the Victoria and Albert Museum, right? I have, but it was a long time ago. So I don't 
really remember any specific opera-related things in the museum, and I know that the Victoria and Albert Museum has done some really amazing exhibits in the last few years that were very opera-centric, mm-hmm. and it was kind of inspired by like Victoria and Albert's love of opera, but they teamed up with the Ricordi archives, oh, so cool. they had like amazing things on display. There's a lot of teaser videos on YouTube where you can see some of the different artifacts that they had, and... So they've done they've done a lot recently, and I just haven't been there recently, so I haven't seen that. I was quite young when I was there, so the only thing I really remember was the butterfly garden. <laughs> so, oh, that's nice. Which was a special exhibit, but they were beautiful. The butterflies were beautiful. Well, but yeah. thanks as always to both of you for giving us such great knowledge. I'm excited to be celebrating Victoria Day for the first time. That's right. We are celebrating here together. Is there something that people do specifically on Victoria Day? Like there's a specific thing. Do they eat like a Victoria sponge? Do they? Oh, I wish. (laughs) Do they barbecue like the 4th of July? Like what is the thing that one does on Victoria Day? Fireworks are a big thing. Okay. Nice. And growing up, there was always like this Victoria Day fair or carnival that you could go to and like play games and win prizes and eat cotton candy and stuff like that before the fireworks and so it's very much like a a public holiday event festival kind of feeling so i guess it's very parallel to like fourth of july well probably feel like you do a lot of the same things like uh, fourth of july like memorial day in the united states or it's right around the same time Within a week, I would assume, most years. Mm -hmm. Well, if you, our listeners, want to tell us what you're doing for Victoria Day and or Memorial Day or perhaps another statutory holiday in some other place, (laughs) you can hit us up at info at operaafterdark.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would love it if you would leave a review for the podcast it helps other people find it and we would love it even more if you went and found us at patreon.com slash opera after dark we're so grateful for all of the support that we receive via that platform and we'll be back with you soon with another episode but until then i'm kyle i'm naomi and i'm elspeth thanks for listening bye Stop.